Hey, good morning, Exchange. We are finishing up our series called The Risen Christ today. We're going to be primarily in Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1. So if you turn there, uh, go ahead and maybe put some markers there. If you scroll there, uh, Ed mentioned the YouVersion uh, or the Church Center app, excuse me. Uh, all of our passages are there for you, uh, and it's really convenient to look back on, take notes on, and, and that type of thing. The, 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 uh, those passages disappear after a week, so I would encourage you, uh, if, you know, if the Lord's speaking to you, you're jotting something down, uh, do it in a physical form so that it's not lost uh, later on. So Ed mentioned also uh, today is Mother's Day, uh, but it's also the week of another special day in the Christian calendar. I'm sure you know exactly what this is, right? It's Ascension Day this week. This week, May 18th, is Ascension Day, and though we have failed, many of us, to observe this holiday or this day of observation, it typically comes, not typically, every year, it comes 39 days after Easter, marking the 40th day uh, where we would celebrate, recognize, observe Christ's ascension into heaven. And uh, even though, you know, we, we celebrate things like Christmas, we observe things like Good Friday, we acknowledge uh, and mourn uh, with thankful gratitude the sacrifice Jesus made, we celebrate Easter, and most of us have often overlooked this incredible uh, day that marks very uh, significant things called Ascension Day. Early in the church, especially in the Catholic church, uh, there was a, actually feasts and festivals surrounding this day. It was a widespread custom in many parts of Europe during the Middle Ages to eat a bird on Ascension Day. Uh, it could have been uh, pigeons, pheasants, uh, partridges, even crows, uh, chickens, because as the bird flies, so did Jesus ascend into heaven. So Thursday, May 18th, find a bird to eat and celebrate Ascension Day. And I think that with this, since we also look at the commission of Jesus, we call it, in the Christian church, we call it the Great Commission. And I think in the passages that we look at today, uh, we're going to stop and look at the significance of the ascension and the commission of Jesus. What his last words, parting words to his disciples and to us were before he ascended into heaven. But also, I think, not to skip over the significance of Christ ascending into heaven. Uh, I want to touch on four places of significance really quickly uh, what this means and marks for us as we look at Jesus. First, I, I think it, it underscores Jesus's complete obedience to the Father to finish the mission that he had been given. Think about this for a second. It, 40 days after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, for 40 days, Jesus chooses to come back and and underscore, highlight, underline his mission to very doubtful and very weak disciples. And he spends 40 more days on earth ensuring that he is pushing his mission onto them and giving them the keys to the kingdom. 
If you remember Jesus, this, this is the way that Jesus began his ministry, uh, also finishing strong on the 40 days, uh, tempted uh, by the enemy. He fasted, literally starving to death. The enemy comes to Jesus and tempts him to turn this rock into bread. There's nothing sinful about turning a rock into bread. If you're Jesus, he did other miracles that were very similar. He turned water into wine. He took less bread and made it more bread, less fish and made it more fish when he fed the 4,000 and 5,000. There's nothing inherently wrong with a miracle of that sort, except for the enemy was trying to get Jesus to end his fast before the father said, it's time to end your fast. He was trying to get him to finish before the father said, it is finished. And in the same way, this ascension day, this, this place of ascension marks that Jesus, although he spoke these words, it is finished on the cross, his, the, uh, his sacrifice paying for all of our sin, it was not finished, meaning his mission wasn't yet through. He still had 40 days to complete. I don't know if you think about this, maybe on a road trip. I don't know if you're like this. Maybe when your family goes out of town, you, typically there's one person uh, in the family that's like this. On the day that it's time to go, it's time to go, right? Like It's like the one that you're looking at the clock, you're packed, you're ready because it's time to get home. Uh, in my former uh, occupation, working with students for 17 years, I had the opportunity to take them all over the world, many incredible countries, uh, incredible places. Uh, and for most of those years, we would mark the senior trip uh, with a trip, two week trip to Europe. And I was in charge of 80 18 year old students abroad, right? It was fun. Um, <laughs> there's this moment after the trip happens where you get on the final flight to Raleigh. Right, like everybody boards, you all sit down, the engines rev, and it takes off. And you, your, your only thought at that moment was, unless somebody pulls the emergency hatch, which is possible, I'm home free. Right, like you just like that moment where the plane took off, and you're like, everybody's going to get home safe, mission complete. Right? And the plane lands and you, then you like, you're going, you remember, okay, we got to get our baggage. And so we go down to get the baggage and then you remember, oh, I've got to wait until every parent picks up their child. And there's always that parent. There was always that parent that like doesn't leave their house until their kid is calling for the fourth time. Hey, where are you? It's like the most miserable part of the entire trip because you're supposed to be home. And I just can't, like, I can't get around the fact that after Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection, literally going through hell for us, he chose out of obedience to the Father to spend another 40 days with the people who betrayed him, who doubted him, who mocked him, and who killed him. It's in marking his finishing in obedience to the Father. I think second, it symbolizes 
this exaltation by the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this. He says this, And what you brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Talking about the ascension. Far above rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And then he put all things in subjection under his feet and he made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Scripture is saying that in this moment, it's as if Christ walked into heaven in charge of all things, seated beside the throne of God, finally where he belongs. Since the, the dawn of creation, he's back where he belongs. Mission complete. Third, it remarks the return of his heavenly glory. If you think about this, Jesus obviously came, uh, wrapped himself in human flesh. And the only time that we actually see the full glory of God is on the Mount of Transfiguration where his best friends can't even look on him. So in the ascension, he, he goes to his former glory, the glory that's due to him. And fourth, I think it sets a pattern for his return. We see this when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom. The angels come, Acts chapter one, we'll read that in a second. They come and say, this same Jesus will come like he has ascended. And so even though multiple gospels record some of Jesus' departing words, we get two great accounts in Acts, uh, which is really the second part of Luke and also Matthew. So let's start in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. It says this, but when the 11 disciples proceeded into Galilee, other, other uh, versions would tell us that there's also many more accompanying them. 11 disciples proceeded into Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had designated to them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him but look at this, but some were doubtful. Have you ever caught that before? So Jesus goes to the cross. He comes out of the grave. And for 40 days, he is uh, interacting with his disciples. He's meeting them in their doubts. He's literally saying, Thomas, hey, come here. Put your finger in my side, in my hands. Look, it's me. Do you have anything to eat? He's eating with them. He's communing with them. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's there with them. And here at this moment, at this final moment, it says that some were doubtful. It's interesting, the word uh, that Matthew uses is the same word that it says that uh, Peter began to doubt when he walked on water. It's that doubt mixed with faith. It's that doubt that kind of confuses courage and response. It's as if they can't quite comprehend that Jesus the Messiah was killed was buried, rose again, and is leaving, going to heaven, and not doing anything that they imagined that the Messiah would do. Luke kind of paints this picture. In Acts chapter 1, he says this, the first account I composed to Theophilus, that all about Jesus to do, all, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up in heaven. And after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the, the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he presented himself alive after suffering 
by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things regarding the kingdom, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the father, uh, what the father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Notice this. So when they had come together, they began asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus dies. He's buried, raises again. And the day that he's going to send into heaven, his disciples are like, so is this it, Jesus? This is when we're going to overthrow Rome. This is when the Jewish nation is going to be brought back into power. This is when the oppression is going to leave us. This is it, right? Jesus, this is, this is the moment. This is, this is everything that you've been doing for the Jewish nation to free us from Rome. Some were doubtful. Many were confused. They still could not comprehend that Jesus did not come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from themselves. That all that they could do was filter Jesus through their expectations of the Messiah, who he was, what they were going to do. And I just wonder what I would have been thinking. If I were Jesus, I would have thought, Man, I think I got to start all over again. I think I probably shouldn't leave at this moment. The guys that I'm entrusting this mission to literally have it all wrong. Have you ever had that moment? Maybe moms, as a on as a Mother's Day present, something happens, and and you think to yourself, or you say out loud, "Have I taught you anything?" I just wonder if Jesus had this moment as he's preparing to ascend into heaven. The ki- what? The kingdom? Is that all you guys think about? You're consumed with this, and yet the enemy is attacking you. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus hands the kingdom over to them. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so I'm sending you, we'll get there in a second, his words to them, you who, who are confused and doubtful. And here's, here's where I want to start today. I want you to soak this in, is that Jesus chooses people that don't have all the answers or have it all together for his mission. Jesus chooses people who don't have all the answers and don't have it all together for his mission. God has always had this thing for choosing people who aren't exactly perfect specimens with picture-perfect pasts. I mean, you probably know some of their stories. God chose Joseph to save God's people from famine, despite the fact that Joseph came from a family so dysfunctional that his brothers sold him into slavery. God chose Gideon, far from a man with courage to lead his army. God chose Ruth to be one of Jesus' ancestors, even though Ruth was childless, a widow, and a foreigner. 
God chose Moses to represent him and to be a spokesman. Moses was an unexpected choice since he had a serious stuttering problem. Did I mention that Moses was a murderer? God even chooses people with mutations as a result of their own sin and bad choices. That Moses literally was uh, shifting into a different person than what God had intended him to be. God chose Abraham to be the father of faith, even though Abraham had a serious problem with lying. God chose to save Noah from the flood. You might think, well, Noah was pretty perfect. Not wrong. Actually, after the flood, Noah got drunk and passed out uh, in very conspicuous places and positions. God chose Rahab for starring, uh, the, uh, for starring role in the Bible. Rahab was a prostitute. God chose David, an adulterous murderer, to lead his people. It's as if every turn of the page, we see God using broken people that don't have the answers, that are very confused and sometimes doubtful for his mission. The bottom line is this, is that God has this history of choosing messy people with problems. And so if you've ever felt unqualified to serve, guess again, God's strength is made perfect in your weakness. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse nine says it this way. And he said to me, Paul speaking, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. So if you are broken, confused about things that scripture says, sometimes doubtful of God's promises, if you have a past, if you're currently unsure where you belong, then you are just the type of person that God chooses to entrust his mission to. you think that you have it all together, believe that you're the best person to accomplish the mission or to correct the church because you have all the answers. You are the person that God uh, desperately desires to humble yourself, turn to him from your wicked ways and plead for God to save you. And he will and then use you. God has only used one perfect person in the history of the universe. And that was his son, Jesus. None other. He used him to become our sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. I want to show you one more thing about their confusion before we move on to the commission. After Jesus ascends, two angels appear. Uh, We know this, Acts chapter 1 shows us this. And we only know that they were wearing white clothing. Uh, That's part of the mystery. you know, we have, I guess, um, I would like more descriptions, you know, God, you talked about their clothing. What do they look like? And I don't know if that's because God decides it's not important or because he chooses to allow us to use our imaginations. I tend to think the second. So I picture these two angels in white as like Italian mobsters, sunglasses, big gold chains, deep V-neck, chest hair, Right. So anytime you think of angels from now on, you're welcome, right? (laughs) So they come and and he was lifted up while they were watching. They took a cloud out of sight. And as they were gazing intently to the sky and he was going and then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. You're picturing what I'm picturing. And they said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? 
This same Jesus who had been taken into you from heaven will come the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I think the disciples think that Jesus is literally going to go up and come right back down. They're standing there literally waiting for Jesus to come back down as if he is going to go up to heaven, get his sword and white horse, come back down and establish the kingdom of Israel. This is literally what they're waiting on. They're literally waiting for Jesus to come right now. So the angels come down, they stand beside them and they say, listen, 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 not today, not tomorrow, but he will return. He's coming back. You guys go, 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 do exactly what he said. And the passage goes on and says, and then they went to Jerusalem and they began to talk about the things that he had said. He's saying, get to work. Let's go. His instructions are given in Matthew chapter 28 and we'll pick back up in verse 18. So Jesus, before he ascends and before he knows that they're going to be doubtful and before he knows that they're going to stand there waiting for him to come right back, he says these things. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to follow all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So it seems that the disciples were waiting on Jesus and they came to the mountain that he designated and he came up to the mountain to speak to them. So it says that Jesus came up and spoke to them. They were waiting for him on the mountain. And as Ed pointed out last week, I'm not a beach guy. It's true. It's because Jesus wasn't either. (laughs) Everything that he does, everything significant that Jesus does is on a mountain. I mean, you've got the Mount uh, of Olives, you have the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, he gets crucified on a mountain, he ascends from a mountain, he only went to the beach when he had to, right? (laughs) I love what Craig Bloomberg says about this. He says, the main command of Christ's commission is not necessarily to go, but it's to make disciples. And too much and too little have often been made about this observation. Too much is made of it when the disciples going is subordinated so that Jesus' charge to proselyze is merely where one is. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you should have some type of evangelistic ministry. He says, sometimes we make too much and too little of the word go, and we make too little of it when we say, just wherever you're at with no intentionality, just be who you're supposed to be and just have Jesus in and around you. But he says this, he says, Matthew frequently uses go as this introductory uh, circumstantial participle that is rightly translated uh, as to coordinate the main verb, go and make. Too little of this is made, he says, when all the attention is centered around the word go. As in countless appeals for missionary candidates so that foreign missions are elevated to a higher status of Christian service than other forms of spiritual activity. To make disciples of all nations does require many people to leave their homelands. But Jesus' main focus remains on the task of all believers to duplicate themselves wherever they may be. 
The verb make disciples also commands this kind of evangelism that does not stop after someone makes a profession of faith. It truly subordinate, the, uh, the truly subordinate participle in verse 19 explains what making disciples involves, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things, everything that Jesus has commanded. And the first of these will be once for all, this decisive, intentional, part of the Christian community. It proves a perennially incomplete lifelong task. This is the commission of Christ. As Jesus is literally leaving this earth, ascending into heaven, these are the words and this is the mission that he exits with. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Here's the second thing that I want you to know and I want to sink in today. God is calling you into a lifelong mission for the gospel. What do you think of when you hear that? No, 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 no. I didn't didn't go to seminary. I... Like, I, I, I work full-time. What do you think of when, when it says, go and make disciples? Without qualifications of go, those of you who have all the answers, you go. Those who have all figured out, you go. Jesus looks at a doubtful crowd And a crowd who believes he is going to go up to heaven, come immediately back down and save them from Rome. That's why Jesus came. These are the people that Jesus is talking to. And those are the people that Jesus says, go and make disciples. He's not talking to this massively uh, overqualified crowd. He's talking to a massively underqualified crowd. Needy and desperate and confused and broken. It's crazy to me, I wanna speak from my experience that I, I sometimes make excuses. I sometimes make excuses in my role as being this on mission for the gospel. I'm a pastor and I, sometimes I think I'm able to judge really well if people wanna hear it or not. They know I'm a pastor. If they wanna know about Jesus, they'll ask. Those are the darkest places of my disobedience. When I place the weight of the mission of God on their ability to be curious and ask questions. But I would bet I'm not alone. I I bet many of us in the room say, they know I'm a believer. They know I love God. They know I go to church. If they, if they have questions, they'll ask. How's that going for you? Have they asked? Did they chase you down?
I want to live a life that's on mission. If there's someone that God has placed in my circle, I want them to have to tune me out to miss the promises and the goodness of God. I want to be so on mission that they don't have to come to me and say, would you tell me? I want to be so on mission that they literally have to avoid me not to hear of the goodness of God. There's not another way. God could have done anything else. In fact, it would have been probably a lesser of a miracle if he used the rocks and the trees to declare his goodness and his faithfulness. That would have probably been more proficient than using broken people. In a lot of ways, who could deny it, right? If you're walking through the forest, you're on a hike, and a rock just speaks to you and says, have you heard the good news? Well, that would be incredible, and that would be very convincing, and probably lesser of a miracle than using broken, confused, and doubtful people to say, let me tell you what he's done for me. God has chosen to empower you to share the story of salvation with the world. Why do we get so sideways about that? Have you ever reluctantly shared about a restaurant or a movie with a person? Have you ever experienced something that's so good and limitless and free and not told anyone about it? Here's how I think we often think of that question. Of course not. I really know and see their need. It's like a spring of water that flows out of the ground. And if ever we see someone laying on the ground about to die of heat exhaustion, then of course we'll tell them. We don't hate people that much, right? Like when we see someone in need of the gospel, we say, okay, I have the answer. This is if like just around the corner, there's this spring, this ever flowing, crystal clear, pure water spring. And, and we're standing around and we're like, hey, is anybody dying of heat exhaustion? Well, what about the people? What about the friends in our lives? What about the family in our lives that have found another spring? A spring that they're convinced brings them life. But instead, when they drink of it, they only thirst even more. And we know that spring. We know the poison that lives in that spring and it kills you slowly. And even though they're walking around in their weekly and daily lives, thinking they're completely satisfied with this spring, we wait for them to be on the ground sweating, dying of heat exhaustion before we tell them about a different spring. But that's the trickery of the enemy. See, he makes them think that they're not thirsty anymore. He makes them think that the spring that they have found, the water that they have found, the well that they drink from gives life. And so it's our job to go into that spring, into that well and say, this is wrong. This is poison. This will kill you. I think you know that deep down inside, something isn't right with it. With the way that we approach sharing the gospel of Jesus, as if someone will come to us 
just waiting. I think in, in all of my years in ministry, in all of my years of following Jesus, that has maybe happened once or twice. I love what Paul says. This shows a little bit of his dedication to the gospel and what he's willing to do and what he's willing to lay down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says this, For though I am free of all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. Paul says, I'm literally going to change my life so that I can be intercepting people from the poisoned well, pointing them to the well of life. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews, so that those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, Gentiles, as without the law, Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win some, those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. And then he says this, think, think. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Everything I do is for the sake of the gospel. That's a bit radical, isn't it, Paul? I don't know. Is there any area of our lives that the gospel should not penetrate? Influence? Be saturated from? He says, so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. In a follow-up letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says there, Therefore, if any wasn't in Christ, he is a new creature. And old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is our ministry, he says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is the mission that he has given us. And he's committed to us the world, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Did you catch that? As if God is making his appeal to the world through us. This is, the, this is the way that God has chosen his mission to go to the world, through us. And if you feel like you're unqualified, like you don't have all the answers, like your past disqualifies you, then you are in good company with the people that Jesus spoke these words to. He trusts you for the mission. You are his ambassador. He says this, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's our mission. That's our mission. To beg others to be reconciled to God. Can can I ask Maybe the question for us, exchange, is 
is just simply this. God, who have you already placed in my life that I need to be an ambassador of your gospel to? You know, I used to pray that God would open up doors. I used to pray that God would give me opportunities. I feel like one day in that prayer, the the Holy Spirit just kind of like woke me up. It's like that minute where you almost hear him laughing at you. He said, I've given you thousands of opportunities. They're all around you. He started like bringing to people in my circles, my neighbors, coworkers, friends, like people I run into. I've given you the opportunities. Back a few years back, we, we started to, to talk about this and we've got some things coming up uh, for this. But I would encourage you in this way. We, we've approached evangelism Uh, a few ways here. And this is one of my favorites that it's just an easy way for you to remember, okay, okay, what's the next step? What what is that next thing that I need to do? And uh, we found this acronym. We didn't come up with it. I'm sure of it. Uh, I don't know who did, but it was not me. Can you give credit by just saying not me? Some other person, right? Um, It's called bless. Bless. And so you go through and it's it's just this way. You begin with prayer. God, I'm gonna have this interaction with this person today. Would you allow me in some way to share my story with them? Would you start to soften their heart towards your gospel? Would you bring them to a place where they know they need you? You just begin to pray for a person by name. Can I challenge you today, exchange? Do you have someone that you're praying for? Is the great commission to you nameless, personless, general, broad? What if we made the great commission specific, intentional? What if the great commission for us began with someone's name? Would you even consider this week, begin praying for someone by name? You begin with prayer. Second, you listen to their story. You know what I've found is that scripture says this. It says that literally uh, anyone uh, who denies the existence of God, scripture says in Romans 1, has to suppress the truth. It's as if scripture is saying to, to get around the fact that God exists and there's this grand creator of all things. It takes effort from, from humanity to suppress that. And I have found most often when I stop to listen to someone's story, there's reasons why they are struggling to bring God into their orb of thought. 
Maybe they're struggling with the problem of evil. They look around the world and they say, well, if God's all powerful and if he's all loving, then, then why did these things happen? That's often a question. Maybe they've had certain things in their life that haven't gone the way that they would assume that a loving God would do things. Maybe they've been hurt by someone who claims to know Jesus. There's reasons why. And so I think sometimes before we even begin to listen to their story, we start with this word thing, right? And we've just skipped this massively important step where we say, could you tell me a little bit about your story? We begin with prayer. We listen to their story. We find a way to sit down at a table and share a meal with them, eat. There's this incredible thing that happens when we share food. Jesus often did it with people that he was reaching out to. He invited them to a table. Many times defenses come down around the table. We, we choose to do this sometimes, even when we know uh, a meeting is gonna be very difficult, whether it's personal or in the church or something like that, we decide not to meet. Uh, across a desk, but across a table. Let's share mail together. So we begin with prayer. We listen to their story. We eat with them. And then we find a way to serve them. Find a way to just serve them. Begin with prayer. We listen to their story. We eat with them. We serve them. And we earn the right to share we earn the right to share. So, so we literally have this intentional plan where we have someone's name in mind and we're saying, how can I get to a place where I'm going to share the gospel with them? You know, the, the, one of the greatest parts about this great commission is I believe a great promise. Jesus doesn't say, all right, now guys, get out there, do this thing. I'll see you in a few centuries. He says these words as he departs. He says this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He doesn't leave us without help. Literally, he's standing beside the Father interceding for us. He said he sends the Holy Spirit to remind us of everything he's ever taught us, to enlighten us, to convict us, to comfort us, to bring us peace. So along with this great commission, we have this incredible promise. I won't leave you. When you go into that conversation and you're scared to death, you're not alone. I'm with you. Exchange, I wanna encourage you today. First, if you've ever felt disqualified to be part of God's mission, that actually qualifies you to be part of God's mission. If you felt the weight of your sin and you feel that Christ has rescued you and yet you think, well, what do I have to offer everything? Christ asks you to come and to give your life for his mission. Second, we believe here at Exchange that every member, every member of the family of God is a minister. 
He has called us to live intentionally in the circles that he's placed you with however he's gifted you. Whose name do you have today? Whose name do you have this week? Now, I'm gonna ask that as we stand and we sing in just a second, as we reflect and respond, I'm gonna ask that you would just, if you don't have a name, begin with prayer about praying for someone. Maybe that's your first step. You begin with prayer in the same way and you would say, God, would you bring to mind someone that you've already placed in my circle that I need to be intentional with? Would you give me a name today? Maybe for some of us, our greatest hurdle in evangelism is the way that we have handled ourselves around the people that God has placed in our circles. And we've created a hurdle for ourselves. So I would encourage you today, this might be a great place to repent. Say, God, I've got this hurdle now that I've got, I talked to them poorly. I treated them poorly. I, I did not represent you well. Now I have this hurdle. Would you forgive me of that? And now would you give me courage to make that right? This week, your first place of obedience might be going to someone and saying, you know what? I didn't talk to you very kindly last week, last month, last year. I, that's not who I am. That's not who Christ has made me to be. I don't know how the Lord is asking you to respond right now, but I think it's in this way. Let's get on mission together. Where are you at? Whose name is he putting in front of you today? Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to respond in ways that would honor you and honor what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that even now as we uh, reflect and respond, Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind people, their names, their stories, their faces that you've called us to be ambassadors to. God, I pray that we would not hoard or hide the mission that you have entrusted with us. But that we would be consumed with this incredible story that brings dead back to life. And I pray that you give us a passion, Jesus, to share with a dying world living water. It's your name that we pray.